Welcome to Animation in Progress, the Devils, Angels, and Dating podcast. This is a CG animated short musical created with the talents of an online community of artists from around the world. In this episode, director Michael Kaywood talks to our friend Lucas Martel about making short animated films and the challenges of working on his own film, Pigeon Impossible, which was recently released on his website. Michael will then give a status update for our film, Devils, Angels, and Dating. Enjoy the podcast! Right, hello everyone. Um, I'm here with Lucas Martel, who has not that long ago finished Pigeon Impossible and he's recently put the film out onto the internet for the wider world to see and is getting a lot of attention. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what's been going on recently? Yeah, well I guess uh, today is November 25th, so we released online a little over two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, I mean, it, it went viral pretty much right away. We got about a million hits in the first two weeks. So it was a pretty, you know, as far as viral video standards, that's definitely a success. Yeah, so. it was really interesting to watch, actually, because I, I had a quick check of it about, oh, I know, it must have been a few hours after you'd put it up there or something, and it was already a, a few hundred hits or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, you can't even imagine now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it got picked up by, uh, what's it called? Dig, isn't it, as well? Oh yeah, there were about like a. Uh, I think Boing Boing was the first one to pick it up, uh-huh. and then um, Laughing Squid, and then a couple of people, pretty high pro- high profile people, tweeted about it as well. So yeah, it's just one of those things where yeah, you know, it it spreads around mostly you know people with a, a hundred followers or something, but then every once in a while you get someone with you know three million followers, and it starts getting a lot more hits because of that. So wow, yeah, I mean, who was uh, the one that? I saw it on Facebook at one point. It was uh, there was an artist who uh, tweeted about it. Uh, yeah, there were a bunch of different. Uh, I guess two of the bigger ones were Ebert posted on his mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Ashton Kutcher. And then were you keeping an eye on those numbers on YouTube during that time? I actually I was on the road, so I would check in like once a night and just sort of see how it was doing. And I've got Google Alert set up, so it'll you know it'll just ping me whenever someone posts it on their blog or something. So I'm not following it too close, but I you know enough people also just so many people worked on it that you know I'd have a different person who'd call me each night and someone say like oh yeah so and so just picked it up and started talking oh, about it or something. That, that's so, a lot of restraint actually I would say because um, I remember when I had something on the front of uh, the Crackle website mm-hmm. and it was going crazy. Mm-hmm. I was like on there every hour checking in. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now yeah, there I think there was one. There's a a couple different like viral video tracking sites that I was paying attention to just. Yeah, like I said, once a night just to sort of see where it was doing. And we got up to, like, I think, like the number two most viral mm. video. But, I mean, it, it, the numbers for that are all kind of just a joke. Like, it, you know, it's not a joke, but it's no, there's no real way to track something like that. Yeah, so. You must have had a lot of comments and things as well. Yeah, and actually I, I feel bad that I actually kind of had to turn some of those off just because my email... I, you know, I couldn't actually get anything done because yeah. I was starting to get... It's, it was flooding your email. Exactly, yeah. And I've been trying to go through and you know, hit some of them, answer some of the specific questions. But yeah, there were just way too many to keep up with. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm slowly going through and catching up with all of the... Do you, do you find those comments can be really random, though? Because oh, yeah. you'll get some um, kind of crazy stuff written in there. Oh, yeah. And some people who are just commenting for the sake of commenting. Some people who just can do nothing but say it's wonderful. Yeah. And then other people who will say some very strangely negative things. But yeah. how do you tend to deal with all that kind of stuff? Eh, to be honest, at this point, like I don't really the negative stuff doesn't really. No, it's water under the bridge. It's, it's like when you've got so much stuff coming in, um, exactly. you don't have to get too precious about the negative. Yeah, stuff. exactly. Well, and to be honest, like there have been a couple of very productive negatives, oh, right. and I I actually love getting constructive criticism. Mm. Most of the negative stuff has been really bizarre, and to be honest, stuff that I don't really care so much. You know, people like picking apart little technical things like oh yeah well technically the briefcase wouldn't be able to hold enough jet fuel in order to you know <laughs> just like a lot of people actually like the number one thing other than the ending it seems like the people have been picking apart is just the uh um yeah just total just like this is impossible you know like this wouldn't actually work in real life like why did you so what, what does that it's a it's, <laughs> it's a cartoon the whole reason yeah. for doing it cg is that you're not constrained to the real 
World. I saw some people complaining that you killed the pigeon at the end. It's like, well, it's a cartoon. Yeah. If it was Roadrunner, you wouldn't complain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other one that a lot of people have been saying, too, is that the uh, having the nuke blow up over Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. you know, like all the... Oh. Yeah, that's been like a common one, but here's here's my response that I actually haven't posted anywhere, so you could have the, oh, okay. you could have the first on this, because <laughs> if the last shot where the pigeon gets it, and by yeah. the way, I hope... I'm assuming that everyone's watched it by now. Um, so there's that big, you know, the tip of the rocket's what comes mm-hmm. down and kills the pigeon. Well, that means that's where all the nuclear materials at. So mm-hmm. that part didn't actually get destroyed. Yeah. And I'm just saying that technically you've got I don't know how many pounds of you know weapons grade plutonium sitting on top of the pigeon. Mm-hmm. Who knows if he's really dead? He could become a super pigeon. I'm I'm just throwing it out there because yeah, just to like try one one like solution to quell all of the things that people didn't like about it. Like oh yeah, you just didn't. So are we going to get Hulk version of exactly Pigeon, yeah Pigeon Impossible too? Yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> Pigeon Impossible Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that I won't go through all the usual questions you get, but okay. one of the things I'm interested in is um, at what stage you were becoming interested in being an animator or an animated filmmaker in the first place, and what was it that you saw that um, got you driving in that direction? Well, I guess I did kind of grow up in the you know the golden age of Disney and then the the Pixar age, so. That was definitely a, a big inspiration getting going. And to be honest, when I started, I probably didn't know a whole lot more. Like, I, I wasn't into Miyazaki. I didn't know a whole lot about, you know, some of the other some of the other less mainstream animation being done. And, of course, now I'm much more interested in that, although I still tend to be a little bit more on the mainstream side of things. But uh, Yeah, because the thing that's really interesting here is that I, I, a lot of the people I hang out with have all gone through the traditional route. They'd already decided to be an animator, mm-hmm. then they'd done an animation course. Yeah. They'd absorbed all of that stuff before they had a chance to make their first film, perhaps at the end of a degree or something like that. Whereas, I guess you've been picking it up as you've gone along. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was all self-taught. Uh, I think... Most of the people who worked on it, they were pretty much all self-taught. So, yeah, I, I, there was just something that I always... I've always liked making movies. I had made one short film when I was in college and a couple of music videos, all live-action stuff. And I always tended to go bigger, broader, stuff that works better for animation just because, I mean, especially on an independent budget, you just can't mm-hmm. do any of the things that we did in this short. So... I don't know. I think I just always kind of. I'm. A, I've been a computer guy. I've done visual effects. So I think I just always kind of looked at that. You know, at the computers being the way that you could accomplish all of those. You know, cool things that you have in your head that you just would not ever be able to actually shoot in real life, or you know, without a at least a huge budget. So, so jumping ahead a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, when you started making this, um, mm-hmm. how long did you think it was going to be the first time around? Oh, I thought about three months, something like that. Or, but, how, or rather, how long did you think the short was going to be? Well, minutes? Um, originally it was supposed to be just a test shot. Mm-hmm. So it was, well, not a test shot. It was supposed to be like a one shot, maybe like 30 to 45 seconds. It was going to be a little story, but it was going to be more something for the real and more just to kind of learn how how to do it. But then, yeah, I mean, people have probably kind of heard about the evolution of the story and everything and how we saw some other shorts that were very similar online and then ended up changing it and letting it grow. And I guess, to be honest, a lot of that was just because I got so caught up in the storytelling side of it. I started this, I really wanted to be an animator. I want to learn all the technical stuff. But by the end of it, yeah, I was so, I got so into the story that that's where I wanted to focus it. And then, you know, all the technical skills just kind of had to catch up in order to be able to realize the, you know, this crazy story that we should probably never have attempted. But yeah, so at that point, you're you're in the thick of it. You're you're learning all about the story and every single little technical thing you never thought you had to learn in order yeah. to get this thing done. Yeah. Um, at some stage, you have to face that you've got life, work, and a film to make. Mm-hmm. What little tricks did you have for making that work? I mean, you must have somewhere along the line realized, "Crikey, I'm taking on more than the average Joe here." Um, oh yeah. How do yeah. I deal with that? Well, I think it worked really well for a couple of different reasons. When I started out, my first job sort of in the industry was doing, I was basically like cloning tapes for Sin City and uh, Sharkboy and Lava Girl, some Rodriguez films. Mm-hmm. And so basically they would shoot stuff during the day on the green screen. They'd bring it to me. I'd be marking time codes and I'd be dubbing. But that meant from like 
about midnight every night until six in the morning while I was doing this backroom operation, I was just sitting in a room, you know, basically watching green screen footage just to, you know, just as the tapes are dubbing. So I actually started off, I had a fair bit of time where I just needed to stay in the room and just make sure that, you know, the decks didn't crash and that everything was going smooth. So Mm -hmm. I actually had a little bit of time to start working on this. You know, it'd kind of be like taking on a security job or something. Yeah, so something, it's ticking along in in the back of your mind all the time. Yeah. And you'll scribble down the odd note here and there. I know what that one's like. I remember when um, I used to work in a supermarket a really, really, really Mm -hmm. long time ago. And um, I did an awful lot of animated filmmaking in my head while I was working at those tills. Yeah, yeah. I apologize to any customers who I look completely blankly at. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would um, make solve all my problems, do all my storytelling and everything in my head, and then I, yeah. I'd get home and I'd have a couple of hours to spare, and I would just go through, go on the computer yeah. and start knocking it out. Yeah. It was, oh, well, with this, no, it was actually like I had maybe not six, but at least four or five hours of actually like time to sit at the computer and work on it. Because, oh, right. Yeah, because okay. I mean, I just needed to be in the room to make sure that everything was okay. So I was, there was a computer in there that had Softimage installed. So, you know, just, I, I had like five hours a night to work on. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years before it was finished, I went freelance. So mm-hmm. since then there has been a balance of, you know, gotta, gotta keep the paying gigs coming in, gotta try to balance the life thing. Although I don't think that I even did as good of a job as that as I should have, but you know, us animators, there's, there's something wrong with us to begin with because yeah. no sane person makes a movie this way. So No, I mean, well, did you ever get to that point then where you were doing your nine to five or something equivalent to, for your day job and then you had to take your quick trip home and then switch to the second project that you're working on? Uh, yeah, more or less. I guess uh, the job that I had, I was doing 3D and visual effects and stuff and all of the stuff that I was doing was because I had already been working on PI. So it wasn't, the movie wasn't anywhere near finished, but I learned enough that I could start doing it for a living. Mm. Um, and so it was a, it was a post-production, you know, mostly commercial. So there was downtime, you know, sometimes there'd be a week where there was nothing going on. Other times there'd be a week that was crazy. Um, so I was able to actually work on it at work and they kind of encouraged it because, you know, I was able to do a lot of things and a lot of projects that they normally would have had to outsource, but it was just because, you know, it was kind of like a learning. Yeah. It's a very good learning tool. you set your mind towards a particular goal and somewhere along the line, you learn all these other things you wouldn't oh, yeah. normally have forced mm-hmm. yourself to learn about. Yeah. So it's like a really, really good way of motivating yourself to do research and development in a yeah. way, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of times, so uh, we were just at uh, we played at the Savannah Film Festival at, at uh, SCAD, and one of the things that one of the professors was saying is that a lot of the students they really they want to learn animation or they want to learn technical stuff or rigging, and they want to get a job in the field where it's sometimes it's kind of hard motivating people to actually want to make a film. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I don't know. I always thought that was kind of interesting because for me it was always wanting to make a film. But that's a good point that yeah, like unless you. Unless you really go for it and you try to kind of make something on your own, yeah, you won't learn about all those other sides of it, you know, because if you're just trying to do a one-shot little test thing, you're not going to learn about having to script the lighting setups and, you know, create a, a an auto-rigger that'll be able to automatically rig several different characters based on a guide. All these different things that are more production-centric that mm-hmm. don't happen when you're just kind of doing test shots and just... Yeah, there's some crazy stuff I'm having to learn all about at the moment that I never wanted to learn, but I'm having to learn. (laughs) Like what type of stuff? Oh, well, at the moment, it's debugging scenes. Figuring out that as soon as I want to assign... Uh, a shot to an animator and he's using a slightly different version of the software yeah. and the scene won't open. Yeah. And then I go and and I have to figure out why the scene won't open and, and it, it reveals all these things I've never had to think about oh, before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so And suddenly, it, at this point, it's really fantastic to have the support structure that I've already got in place with our team because mm-hmm. uh, we've got so many people that have worked on different areas Um and particularly to have a, a few good technical minds around as well who can, who I can say, okay, um, you worked on this a little bit. Uh, you know more about this than I do. Uh, this is what's happening. Can you have a look at this? And mm-hmm. a few hours later, they've come back with a solution. Or mm-hmm. Can you test this in that scenario? Yeah. And so, yeah, I've been um, mostly trying to make sure that the animation pipeline is going to go smoothly. Yeah. Uh, because there's no point in taking on as many animators as we have signed up right now mm-hmm. um, all at once and have them all make the same mistakes. 
and yeah. all come back to me at the same time saying, Mike, it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, yeah I mean, so we're but, slowly getting rid of all the bugs. And yeah. Well, stuff. and even just like debugging your rigs and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Did you do all your own rigging? But, or? Yeah. Well, no, it's kind of a mix. Um, we've had a couple of people do some rigging. Okay. I, I think I've probably had to finish most of it myself. Yeah. Uh, in order to get, uh, because I've got the bigger picture and I can mm-hmm. see how it's going to fit into things. But um, yeah, I've, I am debugging rigs at the yeah. moment. So for example, we found that uh, the devil rig didn't work on an older versions of software. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to figure out why at the yeah. moment, uh, whereas the death rig does. Yeah. So it's like, okay, uh, animators uh, on older versions of software can only use the death rig for the time being. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just try and figure out what's going wrong and all this kind of stuff. And you yeah. find the odd thing that... Uh, um, won't work in like full versions of software versus cut down versions of software things yeah. that we would never have normally come across if you're just doing it yourself yeah yeah um, well, actually we we kind of fought that because yeah we version locked on 5.1 mm-hmm. which was like i forget which version that was i think that was like 2004 2005 when that version came out mm-hmm. and there were a bunch of other newer ones that came out but if you've got the software license mm-hmm. you can download old versions yeah and still run them off the same license so we just version locked on an early version and you know we figured out all the Honestly, I've, I'm kind of missing it now because we just upgraded for a different project and I am kind of missing the old one because there were a ton of bugs with it, but I knew it seemed like all of them, you know, I've got some weird workarounds that I've been doing for years just because, oh yeah, you can't import reference models and have them maintain the past structure, you know, like weird things that you end up working around that just kind of become part of your workflow, even though the bug no longer exists in the new versions. So, yeah. 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 So with all of the hours that you must have put in with this... How did you manage to work out that mix between you, the social life, your home life, and the work life? Social life? <laughs> no, yeah, no. <laughs> I, honestly, the balance pretty much was all work. I mean, it's it wasn't healthy, and I'm I'm trying to alleviate that, but at the same time, that's just sort of... I'm, I'm a bit of a workaholic, and so this was kind of a just massive amount of fuel for that workaholism. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely getting a lot better, but yeah, I never found a balance, especially when I was working on that project. Even now, I still have a hard time mm. finding that, that proper balance. Yeah, so. you have to be very careful to sort of uh, make sure that you're paying attention to the people around you. Mm-hmm. And the looks that they're giving you when you just say, I've just got to do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the worst thing of, of all is you're completely sincere when you say, I literally am going to check my messages. It should take me five minutes and then three hours later, <laughs> yeah. you're still at the computer. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. the worst. That- well, there was one thing that I found really good. I, I think a lot of people do it with the post-it notes around their computer. But one thing that I, I had, and I'm trying to remember the exact wording that I used or something, but yeah, it was like, what's your goal? What's the reward? And about halfway through, I kind of figured out just for my own working process that if I could have a definite goal that I was working towards and then have some reward, whether it was, you know, then I'll have dinner with somebody or, you know, then I'll go watch a movie or just some downtime. And it could be like the littlest tiny thing, but just having that structure. It's interesting. I've heard that before. Yeah. I've read that before. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Probably on my, yeah, my. No, no. I I think I've read that in some older books actually. Yeah. Maybe you've picked them up as well. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't remember where. I mean, I've I've heard a lot of those different. But it is a good way to think. I don't think I've quite got there myself yet. I'm mm-hmm. not. I'm I'm not rewarding myself yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and even not so much about the reward, but it's just about sitting down with a clear goal and trying to stay on task. And because the internet will just suck you in, and yeah, they'll waste so much time just. Especially when you're nothing. talking to so many people, it's really easy to go off on a tangent. And you can have sat down for hours on end yeah. dealing with all these different issues. And when you come away from your computer, finally. You think back, I sat down to do this task. That would have been really productive if I had done that, but I uh-huh. haven't had time to do it, and yeah. I've still not achieved anything. Yeah. Well, that's one of the advantages <laughs> when you are working more on your own. Mm. You can set your own, you know, you can set your own schedule. You can, you can kind of determine what you're spending your time on. Mm. I know one of the things that I've been struggling with lately is that now that I'm more kind of in a supervisor position, mm. I end up spending, you know, you, you work on something and, you know, I've got a rig that I have to get done today, but you end up having to troubleshoot other problems and, you know, all these different things pop up that you just, it's really hard to just sit down and say, like, I'm going to work on this because inevitably 10 other things that will come up that are far more important that you have to kind of, yeah, disband in order to focus on. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. If you're if you're working on a, a short film of your own, definitely 
take advantage of that and try to yeah try to schedule yourself because it's something that you probably won't ever get a, a chance to take advantage of again. <laughs> yeah. So um, somewhere along the line, you actually did start to take on a few other teammates. Mm-hmm. Did you have any issues with building any faith in the project in the first place, or were you quite a long way into it at that point? At that point, I was quite a ways into it. We already had a fair amount of stuff done. The story was still loose, but uh, there wasn't so much a problem building faith because most of the people that I brought on were friends of mine or people that I knew or people who had somehow kind of sought me out. Mm -hmm. So there was already some established kind of faith in it. Um, And from that point on, it was just making sure that, you know, things were done when I said they were going to be done. And inevitably there were, you know, some things that, yeah, that fell through the cracks and that we didn't get to or that I promised someone that I'd have this the shot laid out for him by a certain time, and I missed it. But luckily, the, the team was small enough that we could pretty easily hit most of the... When people needed something, I could turn around and get it to them. So, yeah. so um, you didn't have to go through any period of rallying them or anything like that, did you? No, I don't think so much, because at that point, we had already had... Well, I mean, I had already done a fairly elaborate lighting setup for it and done, like, a, an animation test. So, you know, there was actually, like... Uh, one or two shots, even though they were the old characters and you know nothing that ever made it into the final movie, but it was already a couple shots of like, here's what it's going to look like, here's the tone, here's what we can do. Mm-hmm. So from that point, it was more, yeah, you can already kind of see where it was going and what the end product was going to so look like. So people could look at that and say, right, okay, I know he's knows what he's doing because I've seen that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So And I mean, I know I've kind of thought about the idea of doing another short, and you know, I'm not in any hurry to jump into that, but having done one project i can imagine that that would be even so much easier because you've already got here's what we've done here's what we can yeah you know here's what we can do and obviously we completed this one so we're you know you're hedging your bets much better by spending some of your free time with us as opposed to a different project out there yeah well one of the things i was trying to do very early actually was uh, attempt to get to a stage where i had a mud model up on screen mm-hmm. that was fully lit uh, with the environment behind it to mm-hmm. sort of build that faith uh-huh. um and it's funny, we have we got to a point where we had some really nice environment renders and they're yeah. up on the website and people can see that. Um, and we haven't even got to a point where we've done some particularly strong posed character yeah. renders now. Uh, but it's almost like the, the need for it has dropped off somewhat. Yeah. I could do it now probably pretty easily. Um, yeah. And I will at some stage and before I need to do any more big mm-hmm. pushes. But we don't actually need a big push. We've got yeah. so much regular interest coming in now yeah that i'm almost holding back on our big guns yeah in order to uh use them when they're most needed yeah well and i mean and also just like for pure production sake you hate to you hate to either pull someone else off or spend your own time working on something that's not going to be in the final film just to Mm. you know what i mean because you're so focused on getting the movie done that Yeah. yeah and there are times when it's important but yeah, you don't necessarily want to get so hung up in the the way you're doing things that you forget that you're trying to get this thing up on screen. So. Yeah, I certainly would have liked to have done a test shot by now, but um, and at some point I know that when that first test shot occurs, it will be a big, it'll make a huge difference. Yeah. to the way everybody approaches the project. Yeah, well, and it'll also, I mean, that was one big thing for us is that we doing some of those test shots, we were able to figure out our lighting setup, and mm. it exposed a lot of problems that if we hadn't. I don't know, one of the things that I kind of do as just sort of a rule whenever I'm starting a larger project now is that I, I'll get one character rigged, you know, how, you know, basically instead of like rigging all the characters and then doing all the layout and then doing all the animation, take one small shot that you can chew on, do everything that you need to do for that one shot because then it'll kind of proof your whole process, pipeline, yeah. yeah, your whole pipeline, and you find a lot of things that suddenly, you know, like, yeah, if you hadn't gone through that, then you'll realize that, wait a second, even at this rigging stage, this is really going to mess stuff up in the lighting stage. Yeah. So there are some things like that that kind of... Strictly speaking, we still need to do that. We've got some guys doing some uh, shader tests at the moment, and yeah. that's kind yeah. of one thing that is holding it back a little, Yeah. because uh, until we get the... We make our conclusions about how those shaders work on the characters, we, Yeah won't really be compositing it or lighting it in the right way yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no harm in starting the animation, and that's actually what we're starting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and also, too, because you've had a lot more experience with this. When I started off, I was so new to it, I didn't really even know the... You know, I didn't really even know the delineation of the, oh, this is rigging, this is tools department, this is the layout department, this is pre... You know, all that different stuff. So yeah. 
I kind of saw it more as one big ball of wax, kind of like having a, and eating a whole elephant rather than like, okay, first I'm going to eat the leg and then try to focus on the trunk for a while or something. So yeah, it's... Speaking of departments then, I guess you did it all. So, but did you ever find that uh, you were able to, for example, give away a job like rigging to somebody else or layout or the, some of the less glamorous jobs or, and how did that pan out? The, uh, the ones that I found were easiest and the best use of my time to pass out were modeling and texturing. Right. So I had done the two main characters and um, like one, maybe two of the hero building models that you saw kind of right around there. And that was the stuff that was done for the test shot. But mm-hmm. modeling and texturing was great because that's something that someone can pick up and, you know, whether it's a building or trees or, you know, whatever they have to do, they can work on it in their, in their spare time. And, you know, it's just something that's very easy because you can you don't have to do a whole lot of prep for them. You just give them some either some concept artwork or some photos that they're supposed to be kind of matching or whatever mm-hmm. and just kind of let them go to town on it. Whereas rigging is figures into the whole pipeline and, you know, plus it's just really hard to find mm. good rigging. Well, I, I found that uh, you're right. Absolutely. Te- modeling and texturing was the easiest thing to hand out, especially mm-hmm. when you consider that a lot of people approaching the projects uh, come from different software environments, mm-hmm. but modeling and texturing, you can still to some degree swap between different softwares. Absolutely. So yeah. I've had guys from Max and XSI giving us models yeah. that we just then at a last stage convert over to work in. Oh yeah. We do that all we do that all the time and yeah, it, it made it a whole lot easier because Whereas I know kind of everything going forward now is gonna to have to start locking down and yeah. more and more specific versions of yeah. the software we use. Yeah. And you start getting into a thing too, which is like your general pipeline. Like the way we had it the way we had it set up, it'd be really, really messy and I've I've worked at facilities where they were, you know, they had a large project going on and because there wasn't kind of a central person who was controlling all the data kind of in and out of the pipeline, it was just a mess and it was a nightmare to find everything. And yeah, I mean, that, that definitely kind of hurts, but that's the nice thing about modeling is they'll just send you the data and then you can place it into the pipeline and that way everything stays clean. All of your images are pointing in the right place and you don't have any of those messy problems later on. I, I knew this was never going to work out easily, but uh, one of the things I attempted to do was ask around to see for pretty much all departments. Mm-hmm. And I would ask, are there storyboard artists out there that want to help? Mm-hmm. Are there layout people out there or people prepared to do layout, so mm-hmm. to speak? But I kind of know from experience that um, storyboarding, generally speaking, uh, if you're a good storyboard artist, then you're employed and you don't, and you can do it for yourself anyway. Mm-hmm. You don't have to work on somebody else's project to get it done and yeah. show that you're talented. Yeah, same, that's true. same for concept artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I didn't have a lot of luck um, finding those sorts of people. And even the people that did um, come onto the project to try and do that, um, the level of communication was so high mm-hmm. that um, it was not easy to do it across the internet. Mm-hmm. If I'd sat in the same room with someone and storyboarded, so yeah. heard, I'm sure it would have been a different story. Mm-hmm. But over the internet, it wasn't something that was easy to do. And in the end, I found I was much more productive just doing it on my own. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know I ended up doing pretty much all my own boards. I think uh, uh, Usama Atani helped that. We did one afternoon where we just sort of sat down. And he's a much better um, just artist than I am because I don't draw very well. And and he did a few boards. We could sort of toss stuff back and back and forth. But I've also kind of found that just my sensibilities. I'm fairly particular about the camera and where mm-hmm. it's at. And so passing that off to someone else, I'm yeah, like kind of like you said, like if it's someone who's done a lot of storyboards before, yeah, they could. Pro- I definitely feel good about passing it off to them. But it's yeah, like you said, it's really hard to find someone like that who isn't employed and would be willing to yeah. do it for free. Well, so. rigging is a prime example because uh, there aren't a lot of people who go into the business today. Yeah, I'm going to be a character rigger. Yeah, and I'm going to be really good at it. Mm-hmm. But the few that do and the few that veer off in that direction are very highly sought after. Yeah, and they've got jobs. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So they don't often need to work on somebody else's pet project for free yeah. or anything like that. So yeah. that's been a tricky area to recruit in. Yeah. And um, I've definitely had to fill in the gaps there, Yeah, yeah. Um, which is fine. Uh, I've actually had to teach myself an awful lot about rigging in the last year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're also kind of the exception to the, the rule too, because we're not doing these things within a, like a higher education. Mm. You know, we're not doing these things for a college project or something. Whereas normally, yeah, you would, we're basically following the student model. Yeah. Where everyone's chipping in, they're working for free, but we're doing it in a, I don't want to say a professional space, but you know what I mean? It's just a more, uh, 
just a more kind of loose environment and there's no grades or anything. So I think if you're working on this as a, or working on a short film as a student, you could probably get away with, yeah, because there's a lot of good riggers coming out of school and I'm sure you can find people for those specific departments. But once you're doing stuff kind of out in the real world, you don't have that structure to rely on. Mm. Yeah. You have to work a lot harder to find the right people. So it, when I started my big concern really was actually modeling and texturing because of the two things I could not do to oh, yeah. capacity. Mm -hmm. Whereas at least everything else I knew I could kind of do. So I was reasonably confident and I'm, and I'm a lot more confident now that the vast majority of all modeling and texturing is done because mm -hmm. uh, it kind of means that I can put the job out there. I can ask people if they want to help me out on mm -hmm. something. And if nothing comes back, I can do it myself. If um, I only get halfway, I can yeah. fill in the gap. So it kind of yeah. works like that. Yeah, I know. And it kind of depends a little bit, too. Like, it depends what you've done as far as pre-visualizing everything and laying stuff out. Uh, not on PI, but on another uh, project that I'm CT souping right now. Um, one of the things is that we're, you know, it just, it's been tough to get everything organized and to get everything laid out with just, like, some rough standard models. And, yeah, if you can give someone, like, you know, they need to do a house, just do, like, a 12-poly a house or something that you can kind of chunk into the scene so that you can still lay out your camera, the animators can still be working on, mm -hmm. and then just give it to someone and be like, here's the model, or make this model to fit exactly within these dimensions, and then, yeah, it's a lot easier to outsource. That's always kind of the tough thing is that you still have to have those preliminary layout mm -hmm. things done before you can mm -hmm. kind of pass that stuff off. I should have thought of that myself. I've given out a few different things, and... Everything comes back at a different scale when you're not setting those parameters in the first place. But yeah. I guess I've just been scaling them after the yeah. fact. Well, yeah, and I mean, but that's also just part of kind of an art direction thing where, yeah, you kind of need to, you know, you if you want to control the environment a little bit more, if you want to make sure that things are fitting within a certain style or space, then yeah, it really helps to kind of send it out with a, either like a little packet, but yeah, having a... And actually, the, the pipeline that we ended up using is we were using reference models. So having the low-res stand-in was great because we'd literally be working in our final environment scene. It would just have all the stand-in models loaded. Mm -hmm. And then whenever it was time to render, you know, you just select it, hit a button, and it'll load up the full-res models. So. Yeah, we're doing... Uh, <clears throat> fortunately, our scene isn't all that complicated. Um, we have some stuff that can take longer to render, but yeah. we spend a lot of time figuring out how to make those things render faster. But um, the actual geometry isn't too bad. But yeah, we've got three fairly complicated char characters. Yeah, that's true. But, but you, you, I mean, you've got the table, you've got chairs and clouds, and essentially, it. yeah. So Which are actually instant spheres. Yeah. So that's really cheap. Yeah. You can mm -hmm. fly a, um, even a slow computer around just the clouds, no problem at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't even take that long to render because we're not using fluids or anything like that. But yeah. the, the characters can be a bit heavy, so they have a proxy layer. They have a low-res geometry layer and a high-res mm -hmm. geometry layer, and we're still trying to do some work to make sure that all the dynamic stuff on them uh -huh. doesn't slow down the real-time performance yeah. of the, the animation. Are you doing those as separate models, or you've got it all in the same model that you can just... There's a button that'll switch you back and forth. Um, it's all in the same model, and you can uh, go onto a, a channel and basically switch between proxy, yeah. low-res, high-res, something that, like that's that. That's pretty much how we did it as well, yeah. We, we just got different ways. And because each one comes in as a reference, you can just untick the stuff that you're not working on at the time and, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and, and go along like that. Yeah, cool. So um, anyway, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was how did you keep yourself motivated throughout that entire project? Were there times when you were losing your motivation and you wanted to give it a break for a bit? Uh, maybe this is something that's kind of, to me more just uh, individually, but I, I don't know. I've always been pretty good at completing things once I get going on them. I mean, you know, of course, yeah, there has been things in the past, but at a certain point too, when, once you've put in so much work onto something, whether it's, you know, the story or just the models and the characters, you kind of pass a point of no return yeah. that, okay, like if I give up now, then the last two years have been a waste, even though technically yeah, you've learned stuff from it and yeah, you could start another project, but... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think just the act of finishing a short that you start off to do is that's 90% of it right there because so many people start it and never finish it that just having finished one, even if it's horrible, that automatically kind of puts it. You learn a lot of stuff just by going through that process that you wouldn't pick up by finishing. Plus, once you've got other people involved that are working on it, especially for free, yeah. once you've got other people, you're you know you're you you're better obliged. finish it yeah, yeah you got to especially when they're friends or yeah. people who you're maybe afraid of so did you ever get to a point <laughs> where something uh came up that changed your perspective on what you were making and made you wonder whether you should take a different path like for example at one point i think uh somebody came up with a very similar plot to yours in an earlier yeah. version yeah 
the the original plot was just a guy versus a box. It was basically like an animator's push test, except the box pushes back. And yeah, we'd seen it. Someone else did it online. And then, uh, so yeah, I mean, that sort of forced us to change directions. And of course, at the time, it was really painful. In the long run, I think it was great because if two people unrelated kind of came up with the same idea, it probably means that it wasn't that unique to begin with. So I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the good qualities about the short weren't necessarily intended mm. at the beginning. But the good thing is that once you sort of made something like that, you get a, once you can sort of calibrate your brain to thinking about, okay, like here's where the bar is, mm. then it's so much easier to do it again. If that makes sense at all. So even if it was kind of, I feel like even though the way that this one turned off or turned out was kind of a 50-50 mix of luck and just like, you know, slamming our heads against the walls. The good thing is that by having completed it and doing it, I feel like the next one, we can definitely hit that bar and go quite a ways above it mm-hmm. because we already kind of learned how to go that far with yeah, it. you know how to avoid all the obstacles. Yeah. Well, and I guess I'm talking even more from like a storytelling standpoint, but just mm-hmm. like... I know to what extent now you have to just make the story work and make the the structure and the pace and everything work. And I mean, there's there were a few things in the short that I'm definitely not happy with still. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I think it's more tech, technical stuff and things that most people in the general audience won't notice. But it's been it's actually been a while since you uh, finished the film. But mm-hmm. um, so how long has it actually been since you actually finished it? I think we finished, like, we did the final film out color and everything last May, so it's been right. six months. Okay. Mm, it's difficult to say then. Because uh, one of the things I always find is that, um, yeah, when I finished some of my earlier films, I was still really precious about certain story elements that I knew were not working, but yeah. I had to follow through in mm-hmm. order to hit my deadline or whatever yeah. it was. But you start to feel completely differently about things as time passes. Yeah, you forget all the pain. You, yes, <laughs> you do. And you see things from a different perspective. One is you start seeing flaws that you never saw before. Yeah. Two is that you start forgiving yourself yeah. for flaws that you saw at the time. Yeah. That sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And putting them in their context and saying, yes, but I'd never do that again sort of thing. Or I'd yeah. do it differently. Yeah, pretty so, much. There's a, I mean, if I think back to, yeah, like at the point when we were finishing it, the things that I was focusing on are things that... You know, the things that I was a little worried about or the things that I was spending all my time on didn't matter at all. And they were, typically when you get to the end of a big project like this, there's a lot of tech fixes. There's a lot of, like when I started doing the compositing, I didn't know about pre-multiplication. So there's a couple of shots where you can still kind of see the edging on. But we rendered it at such a high res that, you know, you have to really know what you're looking for and, you know, really pay attention in order to spot them. Because just watching the movie, you would never pick them out. But yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, one of the things I try to do on a regular basis is I just uh, I give myself a little bit of a break from whatever it is I'm currently buried in, yeah, and um, and then try to see the big picture. Mm-hmm. And you force yourself to say, right, what is the most important thing that needs to be dealt with right now? Yeah, and you always it's reset good. that clock every now and again. Yeah, because more often than not, you'll find you've just buried yourself in some tiny little technical thing that looks good in its own right, but then you take that reset. And you say, oh, right, okay, that's a terrible, terrible story point. Let's pull that out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the same thing happens when I write, where, yeah, you'll get focused on, like, oh, you know, the mechanics of how they get from this point to that point aren't quite working. And then, yeah, once you take a break from it for a week or two, you pull back and be like, wait, why are they even going to point B? There's no reason for them to be there anyway. You know, yeah, so a lot of times you can kind of just pull out those big glaring mistakes that you miss if you're too, if you're missing the forest for the trees. So what are the kind of the, biggest challenges you think you must have had to tackle in that five-year period what's the thing that the biggest lesson you could walk away with i mean definitely story stuff you know i mean a lot of people have talked about the technical side of things but i've been pretty happy at how a lot of people you know they'll watch the short and they don't really even notice the technical stuff and that's how it should be mm-hmm. so yeah I, I definitely think that the biggest lesson i learned was just just the the nature of telling stories and i feel like a lot of times especially when i when most people start off i know i was the same way where you kind of have an idea in your head of what makes a good story or what you're attracted to but the thing is until you actually make a few of them mm-hmm. you don't really i i had made one short when i was in college uh that was it was it was more of a technical test but you know i'd done some character stuff i did some dialogue stuff and of course the thing that i was focusing on was a lot of the a lot of the camera work and a lot of the 
uh, dialogue itself, and I didn't realize that, oh, you know, I just, things weren't nearly clear enough. It was written almost more like a, almost more like a short story on paper than it was a movie, just because things, the drama wasn't high enough and things weren't being made clear. And so I think that's one of probably the, this is kind of a horrible answer. You probably want to edit that out and replace that. With, <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, my brain. I know what you mean though, in, in that sense, because I'm going through that same process now in that, um, what you've got in your head and you can write down on paper is one thing, but then as soon as you start to turn it into something that's very visual, yeah. you suddenly find, oh, right, okay, I need to uh, have a shot at least a third of the movie earlier in order to plant that idea before they get to that point, yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. You need to build things up correctly and then, and more often than not, you go through a process of pull this, pull that, make in order to make things shorter yeah. and you forget mm -hmm. why you put them there in the first place. Yeah. Six months later, you're looking at it in your, in somebody else's fresh eyes because yeah. they're seeing it for the first time. They go, I don't get this. And you go, of course you get that because of this scene that I cast two months ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Yeah, you end up getting a lot of just sort of junk that just sort of follows the story around that, yeah, it's, yeah, you just got to keep it simple. And that's, I guess maybe that's what I was trying to say earlier. Just, it helps so much to kind of go through a process where you are doing something in animation because you have to simplify things so much because when you're going to have to spend a week to animate this one shot, you need to know exactly what the purpose is for the shot. And ideally you want it to accomplish three or four different things. You want, you know, you want it to be funny. You want it to set up the characters. You want it to advance the plot and probably tie into the theme somehow all within this little two or three second thing. Absolutely. Just, you have to be really efficient. Yeah. To... Efficiency and simplicity. And yeah, like, Ultimately, it seems like 90% of the work that you do is trying to make it appear effortless. Actually, that's one of the things I'm, I'm trying to work out how to communicate to uh, all these animators that are going to start on things. Because um, an awful lot of them are, I, they might have signed up a long time ago, but that doesn't mean to say they've been following it all the way through. Right. Or they might be recently signing up and they haven't followed every single piece of content that there's ever yeah. been. So mm -hmm. when you hand them a shot, they might see this shot entirely on its own out of context and they don't necessarily know all the layers that you intend to communicate in that one shot so yeah. I'm trying to work out ways to shorthand that because when you can talk to someone in person it's easy to have a sat chat with them yeah. and say this is what we need this is what the character's thinking going into it this right. is where they're going after it yeah. and all those sorts of things and this is why the camera's over here but um, I can't do any of those things in most cases when I'm talking to someone through email Yeah. so I know one thing I'm going to try and do is uh, shoot a lot of reference footage somebody uh -huh. actually acting it out because yeah. in effect I can have a session with an actor mm -hmm. and uh, have that conversation with them and they can get across a certain amount of that in the performance then right. uh, for reference material and I don't necessarily expect every animator to use that reference material, but yeah. at the very least, having it all strung together, um, a bunch of examples yeah. of how it could be performed, yeah. um, gives them an awful lot of the things that I wouldn't necessarily have managed to communicate purely in the storyboards. Yeah. So that's one that's, thing. That's interesting. I guess I never... We, we did shoot some reference stuff that we used, especially just because we were doing humans, so we had to kind of figure out some weight stuff and you could probably spot a couple of shots that we shot reference footage on just because the, the weight seems to work a whole lot better and it's pretty mechanically correct. Mm -hmm. But, um, I guess the thing that I actually found was kind of opposite that because when we're dealing with the animators about the only thing that I had to sort of convey was what the character was thinking slash feeling. Yes. And once you, once you nailed that, that was like their thread because the animator doesn't really need to know or even be thinking about what the, you know, they don't need to be thinking about why the camera's where it's at or, you know, they need to be able to act to the camera, but they don't necessarily have to know all those little details. And in fact, sometimes it's better if it's super simple. Like, I mean, going back to what we were, we were just talking about, like that was sort of that simplicity thing. Like Jaws is about man versus shark basically. And like you when you're doing stuff, I think when you're younger, you don't realize just how simple everything is that, yeah, like it's like, there's a log line for every movie that's, you know, two sentences long that sums up everything in the movie and everything else sort of hangs off of that. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same way when you're doing animation. Like once you figure out that one thing that makes a character who they are mm -hmm. and you figure out what they're going for, yeah. then that's pretty much all the animator really needs to know and implement in the shot. They want to put some subtextual 
you know, some other stuff on top of it, just layering it. But it's really easy to sort of get off track if you don't keep it really, really clear and really simple. So I don't yeah. know. That's Well, I mean, what I plan to do as well is I'm starting a thread for every single shot. And yeah. each thread just starts out with a briefing. And a lot of that will just be me probably for the first time um, actually writing out everything that's going on in this character's heads for that particular shot. Mm-hmm. More, in a way, it's all been in my head this whole time and I haven't had time to communicate the whole thing at all yeah. times. So um, it'll be good for me to just be able to get it out. But it's lots of little things like as well, you've got to be able to say how far they're allowed to go with their performance because if they go too far, then how do they top it in a shot three, four, yeah. a, a minute later? That yeah, kind of absolutely. Lots make of sure. little things like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure there's some, some range to it. And yeah, you don't want them to go completely overboard on a shot that's supposed to be a character just sort of looking at the camera longingly or whatever it happens to be, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know I've got a few interesting challenges coming up because one of the things I've been trying to get across is that the singing will be mostly what the characters are thinking, but they will lip sync it mm-hmm. and they are allowed to, in a small way, move toward, move yeah. with the music and the song. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not supposed to be, um, they're not communicating to the characters next to each other what they're actually saying. Okay, so it's a more theatrical thing where basically mm-hmm. a character steps aside and delivers. Yes. A... It's almost like they're all talking into camera the whole time, yeah. but not actually talking to the camera. Yeah. We're just hearing their thoughts. Yeah. And that's going to be something that's, uh, funnily enough, tricky to explain on paper when you're writing to someone, yeah. um, but you see it all the time, uh, and it's, it's not a complicated to, thing to communicate on yeah. screen when you, you get the right performances from the characters yeah. around them. Yeah. Well, it's just, yeah, you, you basically, you need to jot down kind of the the rules of the world or the movie that you're doing. Yeah. That, yeah, so like, character two cannot react to what character one just said because they can't actually hear it. That yeah. sort of thing. Or not even that. It's just basically like, I know some people, when they're doing scripts, they'll either color code it or they'll do some little thing to basically say like, okay, this line of dialogue is internal monologue or, you know, like TV shows and plays seem to, be a lot more loose with their format of just their scripts mm-hmm. and I think that actually helps them a lot because they can and they can sort of change the format to suit exactly what they need to communicate in the most efficient way possible whereas movies you know we've got this standard format and it works well and it's nice that everything's in that format but sometimes yeah when you're trying to communicate something that's a little bit outside of the norm it's really hard to do in, in on the page. Mm. So one of the other things I wanted to ask about actually was um, I think when I started this, I guess my biggest fear was that I couldn't model or texture. Mm-hmm. So I knew from the get-go I was not going to be able to make this thing entirely on my own. Yeah. I had to attract that kind of interest. And, and I didn't know whether people would be interested or be motivated to work on somebody else's idea. Mm-hmm. Now, in hindsight, I've actually found that quite easy. And it's certainly gotten easier as the project's gone along and yeah. picked up steam because you've got more to show for it. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was one of my biggest fears, my biggest doubts. And it's the th- it was like a big mental block sitting out there the mm-hmm. whole time. And it affects everything. When I was writing the story, I was trying to keep the characters designed as simple, small, round blobs with arms and eyes because I thought, if I, I can't find someone to make this stuff, I have to make yeah. it myself. Mm-hmm. So were there any really big mental blocks like that? Any doubts, any fears? I guess that wasn't so much one because I, I kind of always did think that I was going to end up doing it all myself Mm -hmm. um but that was more just because you know kind of ignorance is bliss i had no idea what i was getting myself into all right so that i think that ended up because i didn't know how hard what we were doing was Mm -hmm. i never really even thought about it so yeah luckily we we made it through that other side but yeah it's it's kind of it's amazing that that we survived so (laughs) Mm-hmm. So have you got any other really good uh, anecdotes you want to share with us or anything about it? I guess the one other thing that I would say, I've actually been trying to do another one of uh, my podcasts on this, would be to uh, get surround yourself with not only people who are better than you, um, but also find yourself some really good either fellow filmmakers or writers or people whose opinions you trust and are fairly similar to your own sensibilities and, uh, you know, show them your progress every so often. And I, the way that we ended up doing that on, on PI was that there were two guys, especially Austin Menjes and Scott Rice, and they got uh, an additional story credit because they actually did end up doing some additional story, but kind of their biggest role was to, whenever I had a, an animatic that was, you know, I felt was pretty good, I would put it in front of them. And 
every time they would just rip it to shreds and you know i would go in with this like little five minute thing that i thought was a masterpiece and i'd come out with like two shots that they said nope those two shots are okay but everything else is in the trash so and it's it's brutal but if you want to make a successful film you really need to have those those voices of just sort of you know giving you positive Mm -hmm. constructive criticism and helping you kind of yeah, mm-hmm. actually, um, funnily enough, as I've gone along, I've kept asking people for feedback. Mm-hmm. And what I'm finding is that um, you get more feedback the further, the, the better it gets anyway. Yeah. Because people don't necessarily want to either hurt your feelings or waste their time yeah. um, giving you feedback when it's not very good yet. But yeah. once something's starting to look good, they're more than happy. They get much more eager to rip into it. And yeah. I've had actually... I know I sent some stuff back yeah. a few months back to you, but... Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm, I ripped that thing to shreds, but... <laughs> that, that's cool. I've had some much more aggressive stuff since then yeah. in subsequent animatics because I responded to the stuff that you did and I, and yeah. in the same round of feedback, I yeah. got some old friends of mine that I trust to mm-hmm. give me some feedback as well. Um, it wasn't a lot, but it was something to build on and I saw some stuff myself and, and changed it. Then I mm-hmm. put the next version out, which I think was quite considerably better. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I had people I didn't even have to ask yeah. coming back and giving me uh, feedback. And yeah. um, I know one of the guys um, I used to supervise as an animator. Uh, he was an animator and I was a supervisor. Uh-huh. And um, I used to rip into his stuff like... Every, several times a week, you know, <laughs> so he's probably just paying me back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he gave me some really good tips, and yeah. there was a, another guy who uh, gave me a lot of really good stuff as well. But one yeah. of the things I found was really interesting as well is that people come at it from very different levels. Oh, yeah. Not just in their own abilities, but mm-hmm. in uh, different levels of angst. <laughs> yeah. Some people will come at it really relaxed, and it's like, yeah you know what you're doing, you'll be fine, sort yeah. of thing. And then other people will be coming at it like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. You have to fix this. You are yeah. ruining people's lives, kind of yeah. level. Sort of huh. thing. <laughs> have you had anything like that? Um, this is not- well, actually what I should clarify is that I get that sort of, I'm finding that across uh, when you put things out on the internet. Yeah. Because of course, uh, you don't know what mood people are in when this yeah. comes across their desk. Oh, yeah. yeah. It might be that they're in a really bad mood. They've just been told off by the boss. They go on the internet to kill some time. They find this thing and they rip into yeah. it. Well, <laughs> and I mean, ultimately, that's just kind of part of the internet. I forget what they said. Like, forget the whole, like, in the future, everyone gets their 15 minutes of fame. No, and this, in the future, everyone's a critic. Yes. And like I said, I forget who said that. But yeah, it's it's true. And like, when you put stuff out on the internet, it's re- you're going to have to actively seek out the people who will give you the advice that you want because the generally the good people who know how to write stories and they know how to give you feedback they're not they're not going to just kind of seek you out or they're not just going to respond so you're not going to get a whole lot out of just putting it out on the internet mm-hmm. but uh but I know there were a few people who I showed different things to and um like Anim Watch when that was still around that had a really good forum site and it was all people who were making independent films mm-hmm. so we gave each other a lot of really good feedback and yeah you can find it but you have to actively seek it out uh, going back to what you were you were just saying about how uh, in fact no, I forget what you were just saying <laughs> I know there were a couple of thoughts oh uh, you were talking about uh, how people kind of come at it from different, different levels yeah well and I guess I, it was more about the how it's harder to get when it's at kind of the earlier stages and the and the beginning levels mm. it's hard to get feedback I think that's just because most people when you see something that's really rough. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know how to fix that because yeah. big, broad story beats are really hard to analyze. You know, it's hard to look at a character and be like, oh, it's not working because this character, um, you know, this character doesn't have a big enough fall from the inciting incident. You know, things like that that are kind of like mm-hmm. basic story. But once it's about 90% there, they kind of know how to fix the last 10%. Ex- exactly, yeah. Once it gets to that point, because then it's detail work and then it's little things and. That stuff is more, you can just look at it and react to it. You don't have to be quite so cerebral in how you're kind of going about it, where you don't have to like analyze, like, okay, what is this character's one thing? And like then trying to figure it out. That's the hardest stuff to really analyze, I think, in script form. So I would bet that's probably why it's harder to get people to talk about stuff early. And Oh, the one other thing I was going to say, you were just talking about some of the getting critiques. And I guess the one other thing that I found a lot is that you don't necessarily have to address when people say to do something a certain way. Generally, it's the 
right approach is not necessarily to do it that way, but they made that comment for a reason. That means that there's some underlying issues. Yeah. So like, I know, yeah, I know what you mean there. Um, A lot of the time when you're, when you read uh, the feedback on face value, yeah, um, you'll have either two reactions, either you'll be feeling receptive and you'll feel like you want to change it instantly. But more often than not, you'll look at it and you go, what the hell are you talking about, slap? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't know what to- they're talking about. So usually the best thing to do at that point is to walk away for a minute and uh, calm down and sort of come back to the feedback when you're feeling receptive. And then you kind of look and read between the lines, don't you? you sort yeah, of, yeah. You yeah. go, right, why is he saying that? Mm-hmm. And you realize that he didn't understand this. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need to fix. Yeah. And it's not necessarily what he suggests. It's it, You might have to come up with a t- totally different yeah. solution mm-hmm. to what he's saying, but you... But the more they write, the more uh, you can kind of figure out what they did and didn't understand. In fact, yeah. one of the most useful exercises a couple of people have done for me is purely um, telling me what they interpreted the story was about. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and you can go, yeah, you got all of that right, but there's one little thing that's not what I intended. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how you saw that. Uh, now, how do I fix that? Yeah, or, an, or is that a better way to go? Yeah, yeah I've, never thought of, I've never thought of that way. And it's, it's true because when people read something, they... You, they'll put their spin on it and they'll, they don't necessarily know the type of movie that you want to make. And ultimately it's your movie. So you still have to believe in it. You can't just like take everyone's notes and just implement them because you'll lose all the vision of it. But yeah, there's always some, some reasoning behind those notes that you have to kind of dig around, read between the lines and figure out like, what is the problem? Whether, yeah, whether it's some other thing that they didn't get or whether it's just that maybe, you know, maybe a character's too complicated or maybe the plot's, just not working or, you know, there's a whole, there's a million different things it could be, but yeah, you really have to read between the lines to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess we should wrap it up. Here. Okay. Yeah. Um, is, uh, so if you're in the very small minority who hasn't already seen the movie, <laughs> then you should go to pigeonimpossible.com. Yep. yep. Pigeonimpossible.com and my contact info, everything's on there. So you can watch the movie and, uh, yep. Drop me a line. Thank you very much, Lucas. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Bye. So time for a quick update. General gist of it is that uh, we've been spending a fair bit of time debugging rigs recently, well, making sure that each rig works in as many different versions of the software as we can get away with. Um, we've also had some work being done on various things like overlapping action and tails and deformations and stuff like that, trying to make them a little bit more sophisticated uh, so that characters do have a little bit of squash and stretch and jiggle and uh, all that kind of stuff. And there's some automated stuff in there in order to help all of the animators out so they don't have to do everything manually. Um, and this is sort of on the approach into animation. We've, act, we've sort of tentatively been starting to hand out shots for animation. So far, not a lot has actually gotten done um, as far as animation yet, purely because we're debugging a few things and trying to figure out the pipeline and trying to find all the right people for the task. Um, I actually spent a bit of time going through all the people who signed up and said that they wanted to be an animator on the project, which came to a nice healthy uh, 70 people. And then I uh, had to try and go through that list and whittle it down and and work out who were the best candidates for the job. Um, Actually, a good number of them uh, dropped off the list pretty quickly because they hadn't posted any work, any links to their work or anything appropriate. Or they might have posted to their blog, but their blog doesn't have a showreel on it. Um, So that dropped down to about 50 pretty quickly. Um, And then I went through it beyond that, and I'll be contacting um, a good number of those people in uh, the near future once we've debugged all the rigs and things like that. Um, So if you're listening to this and you haven't already seen the website, I would heartily recommend that you go to devilsangelsanddating.com and sign up. And top three things you have to be thinking about, um, I would suggest you arrive with a photograph of yourself, some links to your work, and write a little intro in our register your interest thread so that we understand who you are, where you are in your career, and uh, what interests you about the project, that sort of stuff. Because if you're not doing those three things and you don't tick all the the right boxes on your profile, it's really, really easy to slip through the crack. As I've just pointed out, I looked for all the animators on the project, found 70, and dropped it down to 50 pretty quickly. The more that you contribute as soon as you arrive and the more you communicate, the better. 
anyway, so uh, then uh, we've been getting quite a lot of uh, more musicians signing up on the website, which is fantastic. Um, we're still in a state of flux around exactly how it's going to be done. I've got a, a plan in place, um, but finding the right person for the gig is a tricky one. I've spoken to some very promising candidates, and um, one or two of them I'm hoping will come through, uh, but it's always a question of simply follow through on that. We've had some nice trials and tests and samples and done, but uh, the real trick is to figure out who's going to have the time and the effort and the, and the passion to follow it through and take it to the next step. I mean, basically, the whole project is up for grabs. If there's a, there are musicians out there that want to um, showcase their talents, then you know, you've just got to step up to the plate and show your talent <laughs> and follow through on it. We'll, I'm looking for the one or two candidates who are going to really, really follow through and make this work for us. On the other hand, we, a lot of the people who have signed up uh, for music are also interested in sound effects, so we've um, make, been making a little bit of progress with sound effects as well, and we're actually in a pretty good position, actually. We, uh, although not everything's in place, you can tell now what the tone of the sound effects is going to be for the entire piece because we've got enough of them in place, so that's been really, really helpful. Anyway, so if you're interested in uh, being an animator on the project, please go and have a look at devilsangelsanddating.com. I would uh, actually jump onto the jobs slash start tab, and it uh, gives you a nice little intro there on uh, how to get involved. Thank you very much, and uh, look forward to speaking to you on the next podcast. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Devils, Angels, and Dating podcast. If you would like to learn more about Devils, Angels, and Dating or would like to become involved in the project, please visit the website at devilsangelsanddating.com. Until next time. Devils, angels, and